Ladies and gentlemen, can I welcome you here tonight to this um, um, uh, event under the auspices of British Government at LSE. It's a great pleasure for me to welcome you here and our guests who are going to um, discuss the History Manifesto, this uh, new book, Manifesto, um, by Joe Galdi and uh, David Armitage, a book that addresses the question, how should historians speak truth to power? And perhaps more importantly, why does it matter? I hope that in tonight's discussion, conversation, we will get an answer to both of those questions um, and many, many more. How we're going to proceed is... Joe and David. David first will present the, uh, the main argument, outline the argument of, of, of the book for you. And then Simon will uh, uh, respond. And then there'll be plenty of time to involve the audience in a wider debate. So it's slightly different from my normal public lectures. And we'll have rather longer time for question and answer and engagement across the floor. I think that's a very important part of tonight. Can I just then introduce um, the panel? David Armitage is the uh, Lloyd C. Blankfein Professor of History and Chair of the Department of History at Harvard University. He's author of numerous books, um, the most recent of which, at least that I know of, is Foundations of Modern International Thought. Um, but he's published widely on on uh, international history. Joe Gouldy is an assistant professor of history at Brown University. Her um, um, I did make a note of this. Ah, sorry, right. She specialises in the history of capitalism, land use and the design of computational tools for visualising large numbers of texts, in particular paper machines, which gets a mention, importantly, as part of the book. So here we have the connection of technology and history in ways that are interesting, challenging, controversial. We, we will be discussing that. The discussant, or the leading discussant tonight is Simon Schretter, Professor of History and Public Policy at St. John's College, Cambridge. Um, and he's here also representing the History and Policy Group. Um, Simon's the author of numerous books on uh, modern social uh, and economic history of the family, gender, demography, and so on. And the History and Policy Group is an interesting collaboration between the Institute for Contemporary History at some place called King's College London and the University of Cambridge. <laughs> but more importantly, it is concerned with addressing um, or speaking to politicians, journalists, civil servants, policymakers, and embedding the practice of history and providing the benefits of history to those important figures. So I think the panelists should provide insights and uh, questions that um, will have a bearing on many different activities that are core to the remit of this place, the LSE. And it's nice, just by way of closing, that um, 
we are here at the LSE to do this book launch. A number of um, important historical LSE figures get a mention in the book. Um, the Webbs, R.H. Tawney, but most recently um, the director, Craig Calhoun, I think features on the penultimate page of the argument. So once again, it's, it's a delight to have you all here. It's a great pleasure to have this debate about why, how historians should speak truth to power and why it matters. Um, so without going on too long, can I invite David to begin by making his presentation? You can either well, come up here. That's, that would be best. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul, for that very generous introduction, and thank you to the LSE as a whole for your hospitality for this first Broadway performance of the History Manifesto. Joe and I were uh, in California last week where we did off-off-Broadway and then off-Broadway at Berkeley, uh, but this is the real launch uh, for exactly the reasons, actually, more seriously, that Paul said, that uh, uh, it's not a total coincidence that we mentioned Beatrice and Sidney Webb, R.H. Tawney, and Craig Calhoun uh, at the beginning and the end of the book, that the tradition of public engagement by the social sciences, including history, uh, is something that we attempt to excavate in the book, something that we want to promote again in the book, but something also that we believe has, at least in other quarters of the world, been something of a broken contract that uh, the human sciences, among which we count history itself, uh, have not always been as engaged with broader public's, broader public problems uh, as the academics of the LSE, and in particular the founders of the LSE. Uh, and so just to give you a flavor of the manifesto, and, and Joe will fill in uh, more of the detail in just a moment, um, it's worth reflecting what manifestos do. A good manifesto should probably do three things. Uh, it should diagnose something it should propose something, and then it should mobilize people on the basis of the diagnosis and the proposal. So what do we diagnose, what do we propose, and how do we hope to mobilize people? Uh, we diagnose what we call a crisis of short-termism, a broader crisis of short-termism in public culture, not just in Britain or in the United States, but throughout the world. A retreat to ever-narrower timescales, the quarterly reporting of corporations, um, the uh, uh, six months through to at most seven years of electoral cycles, intersecting electoral cycles and the way in which policy is formed around very narrow horizons, the way in which uh, public policy and the information that goes into public policy is also necessarily constrained by those very narrow timescales, and the way in which, therefore, almost all aspects of our lives as uh, citizens of democracies with, uh, again, these competing narrow timescales, anyone who has ever been under the care of an NGO or an other international organization uh, will be uh, under the, uh, the, the rod of two to perhaps five-year uh, funding timescales that in almost every aspect of our public lives, policy is made on very short-term horizons. That's our larger diagnosis. Uh, we also say in the book that... Uh, you might think that one of the places that you would look for a cure for short-termism might be universities. Universities are some of the longest-lasting and most enduring human institutions, perhaps apart from religious institutions. The average half-life of a business corporation is somewhere between 50 and 75 years. We can all think of examples of universities which are not just 100 year old, years old or 500 years old or even 1,000 years old, but some in South Asia or China which are even older than that. Um, 
Universities are invested in the long-term and long-term thinking, long-term research, but also the protection of long-term traditions and the questioning, uh, the critical questioning of those long-term traditions as well. If we look to history departments in in particular to narrow our focus to the focus we take in the history manifesto itself, uh, we diagnose in the book a retreat to short-termism from roughly 1975 until the very early part of the 20th century, a retreat that is to narrower timescales, what we call in the book roughly biological timescales of between 5 and 50 years. Any historians in the room uh, remember your first book, your PhD dissertation, your first article. How many years did that cover? Uh, How long did you want it to be? You wanted to cover 150 years but your supervisor said, no, no, focus on those two years or those six months. We've all had that that experience. And so we diagnose a retreat away from the long term in history uh, and then propose a return to uh, what uh, the French historian Fernand Brodel famously called la longue durée, or as we say in English, the long durée. Uh, that's what we think we should be going back to. Uh, Timescales of 100 years, uh, 500 years, 2,000 years, depending on the problem at hand. Uh, and we diagnose this not simply as uh, a utopian prospect, though we talk uh, in the book very strongly about the necessity of utopian thinking for shaping multiple futures, but actually observing the return of the long durée across multiple uh, domains of history, intellectual history, social history, military history, cultural history, economic and social history, of course, has been one of the areas uh, at the LSE, at Cambridge and elsewhere, which has kept alive the long durée uh, when other fields have retreated from it. Uh, But we, we see this as a practical proposal to return to the long durée in the sense that many historians within and also beyond the academy are returning or have been returning to the long durée and really our proposal is that uh, we should encourage this larger movement, uh, we should encourage others to join this movement in order uh, to mobilize historians as, as we call them in the book, critical human scientists. That is, those who are engaged in um, uh, a critical social science directed at human activity, but also uh, human interaction with the non-human world as well. Environmental history, of course, is an innately long durée subject, which is central to uh, some of the key examples of the new long durée that we deal with in the book itself. Um, in order to give encouragement uh, to those who are already engaged in uh, critical long-durée projects, but also uh, in some ways to make a world safe, in particular for younger scholars who wish to do more ambitious projects over longer timescales, treating bigger questions using larger troves of data, especially the large troves of data now available digitally to us, in order to pursue uh, some of the most critical questions of our time. And uh, Joe will talk about those in just a moment. What we want, therefore, is to mobilize historians, young especially, but also uh, old, older historians perhaps, like myself, uh, to join this larger movement towards the long durée, to alert our various funders and masters, deans, administrators, those who hold the purse strings, public and private, of universities around the world, to take history seriously, again, as a discipline uh, which can uh, inform larger public debates about central critical questions 
uh, indeed questions which can only be understood in a long-term historical context. And so the aim of the book uh, is somewhat polemical, energetic, feisty is one word that's already been used about it in reviews, uh, is to stir up debate, precisely as uh, Paul said. We we very much welcome conversation. Uh, One of our stipulations when we presented the book proposal to presses, in particular to Cambridge University Press, who've done a spectacular job of producing this very beautiful book, was that the book should be open access on first publication. Uh, If you've not already visited the website for the book, historymanifesto.cambridge.org, please do so. You will find a free PDF download, uh, which you can distribute uh, as as widely as you wish, and uh, we certainly hope you will uh, distribute it extremely widely. There's also an HTML text, uh, which allows for dialogue and annotation, not just for each chapter and each section, but also for each paragraph. There's a forum. There's a blog. uh, Follow... Uh, the hashtag History Manifesto on Twitter. Uh, Follow History Manifesto, two words, uh, on uh, Facebook and Twitter as well. You'll find there's a lot going on there. If anyone is live tweeting, please uh, uh, rev up the pace uh, here this evening. We want to have uh, as many people outside and inside the room engaged in this conversation. This is unlike most history books. Uh, We aim not to close off every exit for discussion, but to open up every avenue for conversation. And that's what we crave. We look forward to hearing from you. Therefore, I shall shut up and pass it over to my uh, collaborator and co-author, Joe Goldie. Hi, I want to take a a slightly different approach than David and and summarize for you parts of our argument in miniature and in doing so... uh, Sketch out, sketch out the way a historian looks backwards at the 20th century and looks forward at the 21st. Uh, so if we put into perspective, I want to put into perspective two events, two events, put two events in dialogue and do what historians do, which is to measure and talk about how we understand change over time. And those two moments are the moment when the old lingerie disappeared a moment around 1968, a moment of bouleversement in the social sciences more generally, the ranks of the disciplines being reconfigured, the way that we thought about history was being reconfigured. And then I want to bring that into comparison with the moment around us, the events that have happened in the university since 2000, another moment of great revolution, but, but the revolutions are from extremely different angles, not no longer post-colonialism, but more an IT revolution, the results of globalization, the results of free trade, another moment, another opportunity for turning over the ranks of the disciplines and re-understanding what the purposes of a university education are, where the applicability of the social sciences are, and then how the different forms of knowledge, computational sciences, social sciences, and the humanities should come, come together. Why are they useful? So let me talk to you a little about these two, these two events, because this is really the conversation out of which this book came. Where are we right now? This is a practical conversation, and as we lay it out in the book's introduction, this question, where am I right now in time and space, this is, this is a question not just for historians. It's a question that all of us ask. We ask it first in the family setting. We ask it as institutions, as governments. We ask it as citizens. We ask it as activists all the time. Where am I in time and space? What are the institutions around me? How are they changing? And of course they were asking it in 1968, which is why it makes that year an excellent anchor for how to look backwards in order to look forwards. So if we look back in to 1968, we look at the confluence of, of the rise of economics 
as a discipline consulting with public policy, the rise and rise of economists. And we're not the first historians to see this. Other historians who we point to in the footnotes of her book have pointed to the, the 1960s and 1970s as an era of advancing U.S. foreign policy when Latin American country after Latin American country, Asian country after Asian country found it necessary to employ an economist as the advisor closest to the president an economist commenting on every act of government in the newspapers. And that was simply not true if you looked back a decade or two before that, if you looked back to the 1940s and 1950s. And we sketch out some of that evolving ecosystem of the role of economics as a discipline commenting on public policy in our book. And we say, look, if you look at foreign policy and you look at public policy in the 1920s and the 1930s and the 1950s, the chief intellectuals, on stage at an event of this kind asked to comment about the expanding welfare state, the role of housing in the state. They would have been trained historians commenting on history in the long durée, individuals like R.H. Taney, like Fernand, Brod- Fernand Braudel, like Lewis Mumford. And we go through these generations. And again, we're not the first historians to have made these observations. It's well established in the American historiography that there was something called a public intellectual from the humanities reigning supreme in American public policy conversations in the 1940s and 1950s, having a conversation about class and race and their, their participation in an expanding age of abundance and housing and where, things, where policy should go, how policy should take its direction. <coughs> But economics was changing. The order of the social sciences was changing in the 1950s and 1960s. And this produced something that contemporaries referred to as a crisis of the humanities in the 1960s. Try an Ingram search. Try it when you get back. The crisis of the humanities. The first time that language pops up is in the 1960s. And it's often in debates in which the leaders of the National Endowment for Humanities, the major grant fund writing institution of the United States, are making grants and talking about what they should fund. What should we fund in an era of civil rights? The NEH in the 1960s had been writing grants to professors of English literature to write new programs of of education that would be brought into public housing that would be brought into the American inner cities that would take African Americans uh, and at the high school level encourage African American youths to participate in reenactments of Shakespeare and then to have public conversations about what the humanities meant to everyday life. And there was revolt. There was revolt. This was contested on both sides. There was a revolt of young professors who had trained in the archives affiliated, affiliated with American institutions of the humanities, like the Folger Institute, who did not want that form of humanities for the public, the public humanities, to be mark their education and their, their advancement through the ranks of academia. They wanted archival exactment. They wanted specificity in time and place, exact footnotes building upon generations of scholarship before them placing another brick in the wall of knowledge. Now, we talk in great detail about what, we, what else we think was happening in 1968, how the bottom fell out of the PhD job market, how the ways of advancing in the academy changed, how budding historians were drawn into the front, front ranks of politics, were protesting by in the evenings in labor disputes and in feminist marches and then going back to the archives to research 
And we, we talk about all of the reasons in, by which uh, historians look backwards at that moment, at the narrowing on time and space that their research took, how they went from macro history to micro history, in part to make good on these promises of gender, race, and class, to restore working class voices to the archive, to restore the subaltern perspective to particular moments where it had been utterly eradicated by the nature of writing itself as a discipline. So in 1968, a very interesting moment, if you're interested in how the disciplines think of their relationship to the public, and this narrowing and narrowing of time spans that David Armitage has just been talking about was built on political conversations and political involvement. There's no other way to understand it. Very contested disputes. So we review some of those in the first two chapters of our books. The transition from the lingerie to what we call the short past. How did that happen and why? It's a, it's a deeply imbricated story. So what was going on with the social sciences in the 19, in, around 1968 was a massive overturning. And then what we think, if we look through that same perspective at modern events, at what's going on, where are we right now, compare that event to more recent events in the university, to what's been happening to shape the university and its dialogue with public policy at places like the LSE or like at Harvard or at Brown, where I'm from, since 2000. And if we try to understand this event, as the historians of the future will look back and they'll try to imagine who we were right here, right now, in this auditorium, how our lives have changed over the last 10 years, how our hiring has changed over the last 10 years, how our politics has changed over the last 10 years. I think they're going to talk about three things. I think they're going to talk about a revolution in information technology. We're living through an information revolution. All of us know this. Uh, the rise of computers, the rise of computers in government, the rise of big data has a very long story stretching back for at least 40 years. But it's not until the rise of the mashup of peer-to-peer -peer information uh, and a, the, creating a globalized world, what was called the Web 2.0 about five years ago, that libraries and archives and governments and Google became involved in mass digitization projects that utterly transformed forever the kinds of information about the past which every man, woman, and child has access to. You can run an ingram. You can run an ingram which measures all words in the English language corpus from the Google book search. You can look at the rise and rise of each word at a time that transformed the 19th century. When I just told you to go back and look at an ingram for uh, the crisis of the humanities, and see it take off in 1968, that is a visualization that you can run in an instant that measures, measures all of the books that Google knows about and gives you a pretty good dead reckoning, big data in the service of understanding how our institutions and our thinking changed. Now, we, we talk in the book about the other kinds of software that are available, some of which uh, we have invented ourselves, others of which are being used by colleagues in econ and political policy and climate science. But there's no doubt that the rise of big data is with us and it's changing how we learn. And it's absolutely there in the humanities. It's absolutely there in the social sciences. And it is on the point of transforming how historians do their work. 
masses of masses, masses and masses of data, data at scale. And for historians, the kind of scale that matters is sometimes geographical, more places and more times, sometimes more information, more words, more books, but it's often scale of time. So we think that that scale is being driven by this moment in IT to become bigger and bigger, more and more time measured by these new forms of technology. The second the second force which is converging into this moment at the present is imminent political crises. Now, of course, every moment has its imminent political crises and its emergencies, but the imminent political crises of our time are distinguished in a curious way. Many of them are crises in the long term. Think about climate change. We did not start climate change Depending on whose model you look at, it was started either in the agrarian revolution or in the industrial revolution. The results are cumulative, but it is irreversible, and it will be with our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. And the policy questions about how to manage climate change are necessarily historical in their nature. They take the form of a series of counterfactuals. Should we stop industrialization in its tracks, aim for sustainability over growth, is that even realistic? Has that ever been done before? Or do we need a kind of, ma- do we need a kind of massive intervention of collaborative gro- governments, which we need to look backwards, for examples, backwards to the New Deal, backwards to putting a man on the moon, for examples, of how a government could change, could change things on a massive systematic scale? So we're interested, we're suddenly all of us very interested in counterfactuals and long-term thinking and long-term history and long-term futures. And we argue in the book that there are two other political crises that mirror climate change in their long-term nature. These are, these are inequality and international governance. And in the realm of international governance, we have to look back to the 1960s or before to tell the story of the United Nations, the League of Nations, to look at a pre-Cold War order, order that's something other than the failures of the th- free market for an example of how to move forward. We look... We talk about inequality and that poverty has been off the picture for many debates since the Reagan-Thatcher era and that static state policies, static state policies govern, suggested by particular social science models as an alternative to the welfare state now need counterfactual thinking, including the kind of counterfactual thinking now being pioneered by economists who have taken a historical turn, economists like Thomas Piketty, what happens if you don't take Kuznets, if you don't take Kuznets as a mandate and you start looking for other more egalitarian traditions out of history, other more egalitarian policies designed to eradicate inequality? What happens if you look in those directions? We see that that's another long-term question which is inspiring scholars everywhere. So the third, the third force that I think is happening now to make a new event, a new event in the overturning of the structures of education and social science around us is challenges to the structure of the university. So challenges to the structure of the university are all around us. There are proposals like those, like proposals for alternative forms of education that strip down universities to a form of free market exchange with digitized streamcast lectures and online chat rooms are everywhere. Open up the newspaper. There's Phoenix University, Minerva University, MOOCs are everywhere we hear, make, possibly making the lecture outdated. 
Or do we just need more up-to-date and timely lectures? Well, our, our answer, we weigh in on some of those questions, not all of them. We are not promoting the, the demise of the university. But certainly these questions preoccupy chancellors and the presidents of universities and their boards of directors, even if faculty would prefer not to talk about them. And so they're shaping the future around us. We are being asked as faculty, as graduate students, even as undergraduates, to imagine and articulate what's so essential about coming face-to-face in rooms like this and to prepare answers about how it is that the social sciences and humanities are relevant. We're being asked to justify our existence in a changing political scene. So this is... If we step back to what I've been talking about, the moment of 1968, the moment of the university since 2000, these two events structure a contingent answer about the humanities, about history more specifically, about the social sciences, a contingent answer about where the university is now. And a contingent answer, this is not a universalist or an existential or an essentialist argument about the humanities even a traditional one that's based on classical learning. This is a contingent answer about three political, technological, watershed moments that are rocking some of the oldest institutions, Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, centuries-old institutions around us, and then demand new, new answers about what we use education and social science and our research for. So they're on everybody's mind. And our job, our job in launching a manifesto is to gather some of our colleagues who have been talking to these issues, talking to climate change, talking to climate change and policy, looking for models, to look backwards at some older examples that can inform the present, the Webbs, the Fabians, Braudel, Mumford. Other historians thought about these things. Does the long-term past inform policy? Does the long-term past inform the now? And it's essential that we have a debate about this, that we raise these questions. And the last historiographical work to take these questions seriously, how precisely does history inform policy? It's probably Neustadt and May. This is the text that keeps on coming up in our conversations. Maybe Simon will have more to say about this. But Neustadt and May and their examples of, of the ways that history necessarily, historical thought, historical comparisons necessarily inform the way that politicians make decisions, specifically in war, for better or for worse. They're always analogizing. So what would happen if we took seriously this mandate to analogize with purpose, to analogize about this present moment, specifically around climate change inequality and international governance? What would the work be there? What would we want to aim at? Uh, So we want to hear from you. What is this moment? What is this event about? Are you persuaded? What will you be doing for the public future? Uh, So we have only 60 minutes to have this conversation. And as David mentioned, we have purposely tried to integrate ourselves, for better or for for worse, with this uh, vast peer-to-peer social networking Web 2.0 universe in which we find ourselves. This is livecast. We have tweet tweeting. We we will go back and read the tweets ourselves tonight. Thank you. Uh, and we hope to find you in the, the online forum. We hope to meet you there. And you can comment line, on, line by line on the text uh, on this website that Cambridge University Press has graciously uh, built for us. So thank you so much. Thank you, Simon. Thank you to the LSE. And we look forward to hearing from you.
Thank you, David. Thank you, Joe. Uh, you'll be pleased to hear I'm not uh, propo- proposing a line-by-line commentary on the book. Uh, um, I think this is, this is a book that really did need to be written, and it does need to be read by all professional historians. It asks what should be the public role of history today. Starting with the conceit of an opening line invoking the haunting spectre of a certain previous famous manifesto of 1848, there are plenty of other memorable one-liners here, which I can see taking their place on general historical exam papers of the near future, such as the very next second sentence in the book. We live in a moment of accelerating crisis that is characterised by the shortage of long-term thinking. Discuss. (laughs) I think it's going to be mined by examiners. (laughs) Among the many strengths of this engagingly written book, it is also refreshingly decisive about precisely what the authors see as the three greatest of the current public policy problems facing us. They are climate change, rising economic inequalities and global governance. Colleagues in the historical profession will inevitably, and with some justice, find much to dispute, much that irritates or even grates. Omelettes and breaking eggs come to mind. But I do hope that in receiving and reviewing this book, fellow historians will not simply indulge in the profession's abiding vice of sniping at details while failing to see the wood for the trees. I do hope that they will engage critically with the positive challenge issued by the History Manifesto and will generously recognise the honest effort made here to address crucial issues that the profession as a whole has rather ducked for a generation. In my view, the strongest general argument both for the importance of bringing history into dialogue with policy and for historians to take it as their civic duty to contribute to this expansion in contemporary public discourse proposed by the History Manifesto is that history is already there all the time in the policy formulating process. The only question is what kind of history is going to be used by decision makers. The policy world and politicians invoke history at every turn, but they rarely consult historians. Now this would be political suicide today if it was economic policy without advice from any economists. But we, the historians, are the only ones who, I think, can change this. It's my job here to offer some debating points and different views from those expressed in the book, but I wish to start by acknowledging my admiration and gratitude to the authors for a courageous initiative. In the brief time available, I'll offer a couple of general points for consideration and, because we're historians, some empirical, some attempt at empirical illustration. My first point in opening this discussion would be to question whether the headline diagnosis of a pervading short-termism, along with a shortage of long-term thinking, is quite the critical issue here, either among historians or in the public policy world. The primary thrust of the manifesto is to argue for professional historians to return to la longue durée, championed by the profession's international patron saint, the great French historian Fernand Brodel. For Gouldian Armitage, quote, the extension of historians' timescales we both diagnose and recommend in this book. They support the practicality of this by advocating new forms of research, exploiting digitalised big data by historians using the power of new tools, such as the paper machines extension of Zotero, developed and deployed by Joe Gouldy herself. They mention approvingly the growing field of environmental history and its debate over the new geological era term, the Anthropocene, Also, deep history, that's 40,000 years, 
And big history, um, that's 13.8 billion years, which apparently is the kind of number that attracts the attention of Bill Gates himself. He likes talking with people who only deal in billions, I guess. (laughs) However, later on, on page 112 to be exact, the manifesto talks, I think very relevantly, about what it calls the dirty long durée. They identify several influential examples of such false, teleological, or essentially deterministic long-termism in current public policy discourse. Firstly, narratives relating to climate change which tend to predict unavoidable apocalyptic collapse in the misguided belief that this is the only way to mobilise public opinion. Secondly, the so-called historical insights of path dependency in economics, or thirdly, of some aspects of evolutionary biology each of which claim that history matters, but it only mattered once and deep in the irrecoverable past, setting an entire society or region or the whole species on a course towards the necessity of gendered hierarchy and inequality, perhaps, or towards the superiority of free markets and accumulative capitalism. So there is, in fact, quite a bit of long-termism about already. My question is whether a focus on the long-term is truly the antidote to a plethora of short-termism, as far as historians are concerned. Or is it not simply the other side of that myopic coin? Short-sight and long-sight are equally impaired. Isn't the real strength of history in the very full attention that it gives to the neglected medium term? Brodell himself identified a medium temporality between the froth and fireflies of political events and the histoire quasi-immobile of physical environments. History pays great attention to the interaction between both long and short and the medium term because its practitioners are highly respectful in their historicist methodology of inquiry to three key aspects of society and of change. These are one, context, two, process, and three, power. One, context. What did things mean to people in the past and what were their motivations? Two, process. Careful attention to sequence matters crucially in establishing causation. Three, power. Conflict and negotiation due to differences of position, interest and resources is integral to understanding exactly how change occurs and these differences often need to be actively researched by historians because power hides and it also conceals and because posterity, which is another word for the victors, likes to forget. As Gouldie and Armitage emphasise, good history recovers the contingent alternatives in the past and the multiple levels and agencies of causation, and so alerts us to the prospective indeterminacy of the future. If we think the past is a smooth, ineluctable teleological line to the superiority of the present, our uncertainty about the future and its prospective openness seems alien and daunting, even frightening, and those peddling dogmatic or fundamentalist certainties seem attractive. The crucial lesson from learning about history from historians and not from biologists or economists is that our future right now, today, remains prospectively open subject to our politically negotiated choices not determined by the impersonal forces of globalisation or of our genes. Modern British history quite clearly shows, for instance, that the rise to preeminence in public discourse of a moralising individualism dressed up as the inevitable and unavoidable competitive laws of a market economy has, has come and gone before. 
Modern British society and its globalising economy flourished without any such dominant ideology from the time of the Reformation through the Industrial Revolution to the 1820s. From the 1830s until the 1900s, when, econ- economy, when income and wealth inequality peaked, in fact in 1913, at its previously highest recorded level before the current coalition government's record, Adam Smith's ideology of competitive individualism held sway in that Victorian Britain, where the factory and the workhouse became the main institutions of the economy. Though increasingly subject to challenge from Marx and Engels, from organised labour, and more prosaically but interestingly in the policies of some large provincial municipalities from the 1870s onwards, it was not until the first half of the 20th century that the Victorian ideology rapidly lost ground, disappearing entirely as a guide to the public policy to public policy from the late 1930s until the 1980s. It has now been dominant once again as neoliberalism for about a three or four decade period, just as it was for such a length of time between the 1830s and 1870s. Once again, it has produced pain and penury for the workers, unregulated destruction of the environment, but massively increasing wealth for an elite. So if the competitive forces of globalisation today somehow seem to force workers' wages ever downward and the bonuses of bankers ever upward, history can show us exactly how economic elites have repeatedly used their position, power, the law and the institutions of the state to exploit others in this way. But it also shows us periods when this has not been the case and how these less exploitative arrangements were achieved and made effective through the actions of others. History shows that nothing is inevitable. And this is a perspective in this particular case requiring the linkage in history of short, long and medium terms. My final point is about practicalities. For history to engage with public policy, it has to be a dialogue, a dialectical process. This is not something very much discussed in the manifesto. If we want to encourage public policymakers to engage with historicism as a way of thinking about the world and how change occurs, then we historians need to think about the needs and goals of those personally accountable for public policy advice and implementation. History can learn from policy, and indeed it must at least understand what the pressing policy issues are as perceived by the policymakers. This is certainly not so that historians can start engaging in careers of applied policy-relevant government-funded impact research projects and promptly cease to be historians. The questions we ask about the past must come from our discipline's own evolving critical intellectual agendas. Otherwise, we have nothing independent to offer the policy world, and why should they listen to historical elaborations of what they already know? This is not, then, a matter of historians aping the policy world, but of historians learning how to exert maximum influence over policymakers with their independent insights and their distinct historicist approach by knowing how to talk to policy. We need to train historians not in researching for a public policy agenda, but in communicating to public policy the enormous variety of valuable insights from the research they conduct into history. This, I think, is the field of operations where the institution I founded in 2002, History and Policy, with with a number of colleagues, has been operating. This is an institution controlled by historians, History and Policy, seeking to insert their different voice and perspectives into policy. And this leads to a final point about practicalities. 
I can certainly sign up to the importance of historians making much more effort to ensure that their skills, knowledge and understandings of the relationship between past, present and future are fully taken on board in deliberations that have informed public policy. But my experience since 2002 is that this requires more than stimulating and challenging books, including long-term refreshing insights, valuable though these are. It requires also institutions with public profile to promote such engagement, and that has been the purpose of history and policy. But it is not something currently with recognised funding in the HE sector. Yes, that was a plea for resources. (laughs) To conclude, Joe Gouldy and David Armitage wish to invigorate and stimulate a conversation among historians and others about public engagement. And it is certainly one that I believe we in the history profession should now be joining. So, to mirror the opening line of the History Manifesto, I concur. Arise, historians, cast off your chains. You have much to lose. (laughs) You you have much to lose, but you have much to gain. Okay, let's let's get the argument going. If you could put your hands up, and then please wait until a microphone comes, because we are recording this, so if you try and ask your question without the microphone, we don't hear. I'm going to take about three or four questions at a time. So I'll start with the gentleman at the front, the lady over there in the red top and cardigan, and keep your hands up. Gentleman in the middle on the upper floor, blue shirt, see him? Those three will start. Okay, thank you. Perhaps you can uh, introduce yourself as well. Just yes, uh, and get your share on Twitter. Thank you. <laughs> History is written from Cambridge, Oxford and Harvard through the established media and increasingly new media. Does this, does this not make job titles from these same schools a profound conflict of interest and a self-feeding system? And in, I'm sorry, and in this self-feeding system, are we not doomed to watch history repeat itself? If there is a step on to a history of manifesto, is it not the self-analysis of the people that write history and the people that uh, watch and record history like yourselves? Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Um, first of all, thank you for the talk, and I'm really excited that the History Manifesto is open access. Um, so you opened your talk um, talking about the decline of the historian, public intellectual, and the rise of the economists. And, um, you know, that's something that uh, is kind of uh, has been noticed by many people. And I often think about it in relation to the rise of statistics, which got going in the late 70s, 80s, um, and economics, slow imperialism across the humanities has been kind of a, well, our stats are better than yours. Um, so how has the rise of statistics affected uh, the history profession, and how do you see it affecting it in the future? Thank you. Could I just remind you, please introduce yourself. It would be good to know who's a student of history, a professional historian, who's an economist, anyway. <laughs> I'm uh, Melanie, and I'm an economist, or I'm studying economics. Thank you. Very helpful. <laughs> Hello. Uh, uh, Alistair Anderson, um, UCL um, Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis, also a history graduate of the LSE from 1983. Um, my, my, I'm very interested in this um, return to the uh, long-term history 
Um, but my question is this. How do you position yourselves in relation to the clear dynamics movement, especially given uh, Professor Turchin's suggestion in his uh, 2007 paper that the appropriate division of labour is that historians should concern themselves with what is particular and contextual, while uh, long-term generalisations and theorising should be reserved for the clear dynamicists? Basically, that his- history can't be um, reformed as a a discipline in this subject. Thank you. Okay, you've all taken notes. Three rather complex questions, which I'm not going to attempt to summarise. Um, who'd like to leave off? David, do you want to? Yeah, I will, I will definitely duck the second question about statistics. That's very much uh, Joe's uh, area of expertise, and uh, uh, she'll be able to speak to that. And perhaps suture together the first question and the third question um, in terms of self-analysis of those, especially in established institutions, about the future of history, and then uh, the different ways in which history is being reimagined on the short term and the long term. Um, and uh, as you're quoting the possibility that the two, uh, uh, the twain shall never meet, uh, that there will never be the, the happy medium, the moyen durée, uh, the, the, the balance between the long and the short that uh, Simon was also talking about. Um, this book arises very much from uh, the self-analysis and self-questioning of two historians uh, at uh, institutions where, in, in my case in particular, uh, I spent the last two years as chair of my department thinking about uh, the future of graduate students in my department, thinking about the future of the undergraduate curriculum, looking at declining enrollments in my department, not unusual at all in history departments across the world, not unusual, of course, across humanities departments across the world, and trying to concentrate my colleagues' attention on why were those enrollments declining, where were students going, uh, talking to our undergraduates and our graduate students and saying, what do you need from a history degree, whether a BA degree or a PhD? D degree. What is it that um, you come to understand from history and even talking to students who are not in our department to ask them, why did you not, uh, when you could make a decision, why did you not decide to come and do history? So a sense of crisis, uh, a sense of a need to reform, uh, a sense of purpose in institutions which draw together large numbers of students and faculty in precisely that kind of self-analysis certainly drove my impetus in thinking about the future of the university, the future of history departments uh, at a moment where uh, both private and public institutions on both sides of the Atlantic and around the world need to engage in that kind of self-analysis. And it's therefore not just a question of history, an internal question for history with a capital H about where we might go, but to come up with more hopeful and optimistic views than perhaps the, the rather divided one that you quoted. I, I, I didn't sense that you necessarily shared that analysis yourself, uh, Alistair, but uh, uh, that sense of uh, the incompatibility between the two is something I think that we... Uh, elaborate reasons in the book why those two things can and must be brought together. This is not a polemic against microhistory in favour of macrohistory. It's precisely about the necessity of uh, inserting the two into productive dialogue with each other since that dialogue has in some sense broken down and needs to be reintegrated. Chair, do I add something? Uh, yeah, sure. I'd, I'd, like to, uh, I'd like to talk to the first and the third question. And the first question, I'm really, I'm really delighted that that's the first question on the table. Uh, and my answer is going to differ a little from, from David's, because David is speaking to this audience as a former administrator, and he comes, he comes here as the, 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 the last chair of the Harvard History Department. And I come to history and to the writing of the History Manifesto from a slightly different position. I'm an assistant professor, but I'm a former activist. 
And so the question of co-optation, a critique of privilege, is really important. It's really it's very something that's very important to many people in the world. It's very important to some people in these institutions. And critique is one one position of dialogue about it. Another position of dialogue about it is solidarity, is the necessity for allies, allies within institutions who use their, their position of privilege in solidarity with other people who are trying to change policy. And th- th- this is a position that many policymakers in the best of all possible worlds are interested in. Mm-hmm. And it is a, it is a, a solid form of solidarity that many historians in labor history, in women's history, have traditionally been extremely interested in, and even even in the form of of doing something like deconstructing the article or the book as a way of communicating, and cr- instead going on walking tours where the community tells the story of the history of the community to itself. So, in an age of digital history, I think all of these these paths are extremely important. And one of the directions that we point to is that there are different ways of doing digital history. There are different techniques of doing big data, depending on who you think is out there who might be interested. One of the forms that digital history has taken over the last five years is informed by the history of, uh, is informed by the tradition of scholarly articles, where we want to do things like have really robust, statistically correct visualizations and maps. Well, if you're, if you're aware that there's a Twitterverse out there, if you're aware that there's, there are things like Facebook and that there are many communities are, that are connected and that we have, we have allies in different communities who are not in the university, who care about many of these policy issues, then a different kind of information becomes very interesting. So we talk about Zotero. Zotero was Zotero is a platform for sharing scholarly information, for sharing, sharing data about events in the past that was used by, by the Occupy activists during Occupy to create the Occupy archive online. So you've got a, you've got a, a, a movement that's in the process of coming into being. They don't have their demands yet, but they're in the process of getting their demands, and you've got a series of events that are happening in real time. So how did, can you use how can you use this platform that was designed by historians for historians to crowdsource that effort? And that's worth looking at. And another, another, another example that we hold up in the book is Matthew Connolly's work. Matthew Connolly is visiting the LSE, I believe. Uh, he's a historian at Stanford, a historian of public policy in America. And he's, he's made something in his last effort called the declassification engine. And the declassification engine is a map of all of the dark archives in the United States Department of State that have been silenced. So they submit FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests. Send me all of your information on this Vietnam War activist. And then they can tick off how many things have been silenced. And this has mounted a case we didn't know before they started doing this. It's mounted a case that's showing the repression of information uh, over the last two presidencies. Yeah. So sorry to wrap that up. There's, I, I'm not getting to uh, Melanie's question about statistics. One thing that's worth considering is that the rise of statistics over the last generation of economists has, has come at the same time. It's coincided with the rise of histories of science, of histories of statistics by folks like Ian Hacking. We have been keeping... We have been dancing toe-to-toe with the the economists. Uh, And maybe I'll wrap wrap that up. Okay, I'll just be very brief because I know more want to ask questions. Um, Just on the um, first and second questions, really, uh, 
Yeah, hist- I mean, history is practiced in universities. Um, history and policy is not in any sense exclusive to uh, Russell Group universities or anything like that. It's five, 500 current historian members and the Russell Groups are not overrepresented amongst them. They're from all over the country and some of them are from abroad. Uh, five or 6,000 Twitter followers um, who come from all over the place and I do know that uh, schools and teachers and uh, uh, sixth formers use the, the website and find it uh, helpful to them. So I don't think stream policy is not about Oxbridge. It's about uh, historians engaging with public policy. It's about getting out of the ivory towers, not kind of trying to stay in them. Um, and uh, statistics, uh, well, um, historians have been studying and looking at statistics for a very long time and the crucial thing about statistics of course is not numbers it's codes and classifications statistics are nothing much I mean the the numbers are are the the trivial in a sense part of statistics the crucial thing in statistics is the coding the creation of equivalences and the classifications Uh, and that historians have studied a lot I've personally studied it a lot and many others have and it's crucial. Um, and if you use statistics without being aware of its provenance and the changes in the ways it's constructed over time, if you use data series and so on, you get you get guy got, you know you get you get um, famous phrase Google. Um, you get um, rubbish. Uh, you, you can, of course, when numbers exist, you can, you can you can study them. You can produce indices. You can produce apparent findings. But if you don't pay very careful attention with the skills of a historian to the provenance of the coding and classifications, you could be spinning, spinning things that don't really um, show remotely what you think they show. So historians have been very... And the field of economic history, which I was glad David mentioned, because I do think if I'd had more time, it would have been... Uh, I'm sure you're aware... It, uh, the, the, the odd, one of the historiographical slight oddnesses of the book, but it's, it's simply explainable because of the, the specialisms of its two authors, and you know, you can't write a book like that with multiple authors uh, beyond a couple's probably the limit, um, is that economic history has been doing an awful lot of what they're advocating. It has never left the long term alone, and it has always looked at data, at statistics. It's, it's been dealing with big data and those problems um, really for forever. Um, and uh, you know, so a, a lot of that there is a continuity in the history profession within that subset of, of it, uh, which is well represented, of course, here at the LSE and also, as it happens, in Cambridge, where I come from. OK, some more questions. Two here, the woman in the scarf and then the gentleman in the white shirt. So, no, forward. And then the gentleman in the white shirt. At the front here on the first row, one other. Go for four. Tony Travers. Okay, please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Emily. I'm a student at the International History Department here. Um, And I just started, so my question might be a bit ignorant. I hope not. Um, I was wondering, do you think that every historian should engage in this this, uh, practice that you're preaching? Um, Because as far as I see it, historians who write uh, or who who write over great uh, uh, spans of time are, are using work by historians who have engaged within their discipline and who have gone down to the nitty-gritty archives and, and researched really thoroughly a very small portion of history. Um, 
And how do you see, I guess, the role of, of that history in, uh, in, yeah, in what you're proposing? Thank you. Thank you. Behind. Yes, uh, thank you very much uh, for coming. My name is Dror. Um, I uh, got a master's here in history of international relations and uh, also a PGC later on. So I'm actually a school teacher. I'm the head of my history department um, down in a school in Kent. And my question actually is more focused towards the medium term. So if you think about the professors, you know, 20, 30 years down the line, who would be presumably your students, maybe in the next five to 10 years, what do you want them to know and how do you want them to think? Thank you. Jack, corner here. Okay. Uh, Hello, uh, Jack Tyndall. I was uh, formerly a student of government and history, and I just can't really stay away. (laughs) Um, One thing I was uh, very pleased to hear about, first and foremost, uh, was the references you made to uh, counterfactuals. I mean, I think it is, from an uh, academic point of view, very important. I mean, I'm I'm rather reminded of uh, Professor Robert Fogel's excellent work uh, that I think he won the Nobel Prize for it on uh, railways and postulating what a world would be like without um, railways being constructed. Um, But I think the thing that I really took away from uh, what you've uh, been speaking about today was that old Greek proverb that, uh, you know, society grows great when old men plant trees that they know they're never going to sit in the shade of. Um, So what I I would like to know, and I was very tempted from uh, Dr. uh, Gilday's points about the social media, is... How in this era of very much a buffet approach to politics, I think, and, you know, instant gratification looking at things via the social media, which I think in some respects is very positive, but how can historians encourage public policymakers to start thinking in terms of generational changes? I think we're getting there with infrastructure, but less so in other areas, rather than just thinking in terms of the electoral cycle. Uh, I'm Tony Travers from the Government Department here at LSE. Uh, I was once co-author of a book about the poll tax, the British poll tax, uh, where we discovered, of course, there had been earlier poll taxes, well written up, had no impact, of course, on the government of the day. But still, um, my point is nothing to do with that. (laughs) History sees historians imposing or interpreting events that took place in the past and creating a story from them. But of course, because of that, different historians come up with different versions of the past. You can see that particularly with a large number of books produced about the First World War recently, many of them brilliant, but <coughs> concluding often very, very differently as to what they see and what they can learn from it. Politicians and the people who make public policy, of course, are involved in a competitive process, and they then look at historians and choose the ones they want. So my question to you is, as the fragmentation that Jack refers to and we've heard from the platform occurs, won't it simply mean that politicians in a slightly consumerist way will choose from the historians they like, of whom there will be very many more, and that actually, unless there were, and there never could be, a single historical answer to things, we are left with the problem, question, that people or politicians, policymakers, will simply choose the historians and the history they want. Let, let me abuse my privilege and add, add my own question. Somebody once said, in the long run, we're all dead. And, um, Who's that? <laughs> well, actually, didn't. didn't <laughs> but, I mean, doesn't, doesn't that connect with the issue about historians informing policymaking? There is some 
truth to that point of view from the, the pr perspective of electoral politics at least. So whilst you can engage in politics in, in, in different ways than electoral politics, electoral politics and policy making is short term. That's why climate change is so problematic. I mean, does that complicate the story? In a sense, you, you can speak, you can show your manifesto to, to power, but they're just structured differently. Go on, you answer that first. <laughs> <laughs> they're not like you and me. <laughs> well, it's true. It's true. Well, you know, we have, we've, had, we've been having good conversations with colleagues about things like this. Uh, and I'm struck by a conversation that I had with an Ottoman historian. And the Ottoman historian said... No, I like your argument. She hadn't read the book, but we were having we were having a glass of wine. She said, "No, I like your argument. I think that's good. I think it's good. It's good that we should write relevant policy." But our problem, our problem as a liberal Middle Eastern historian in the United States, is that there are lots of Middle Eastern historians, and uh, policy is really attracted to someone who I don't agree with. <laughs> so, uh, so that's true. In the middle, you know, our mid colleagues in Middle East and Latin America have a lot to say. But one, you know, there, there, there's a consumer problem in that history can cherry pick what it, uh, policy can cherry pick that it wants. And then there's also a problem of access. So one argument might run, well, if you buy our argument, if you buy the argument of the history manifesto and you think that policy needs good history and it needs your kind of history, it needs hi history with the subaltern included, it needs history of laborers, it needs a history of climate and that points the finger and says who's responsible. <coughs> Well, that, that's a call not for us. We, we just did our job. We're done. <laughs> that's for the rest of you to get ready, because there might, if, you're, if you are, are a history student or a history graduate student or a history faculty member who has other alternative politics or alternative ideas, a moment might come when a reporter might put the microphone in front of your face and say, the history manifesto said that you have things to say. What are they? So you might have to get ready, and that might entail some self-examination of one's own position in the world and the way in which one engages with the present and the way in which one chooses a subject. Uh, so that's a process that we've been quite shy about as an institution for a long time for some structured reasons. It's not necessarily a part of the historian's DNA that we should be shy about. We, we've created this effectual culture. And the other, the other thing that that brings up for me is a question of access, that policymakers can't get at our opinions if all of the Ottoman historians who do care about, care about gender, race, and class are all publishing behind locked journals. The economists aren't. Pre, they have their pre-releases out on Repec or SSRC or one of these open access platforms. They're on the Internet. The policymaker can download it. The minister can download it that afternoon. No problem. Our stuff, they have to buy a book. It has to ship out. They have to buy subscribe, they have to get a library subscription. We don't do open access. So this whole format thing that we've been talking about, the open access publication of Cambridge University Press, this is actually a quite radical act of Cambridge University Press that other publishers, other institutions, and individuals have to tune into. If you want for things to be read, you have to provide access. Do you want to say something? I'm sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, Addressing this sort of issue about, uh, well, the two, the, both what Paul and Tony said and, uh, and perhaps the other one about generational change and cycles. Um, I mean, I think one has to be careful that one doesn't end up with a rather 
it's just simply a counsel of despair for any intellectual or academic because, yes, um, you know, politics is about uh, self-fulfilling prophecies, people holding ideologies that are self-fulfilling prophecies and trying to make everybody else believe them enough to get them through. Um, and we've seen plenty of that in the last few years in particular. Um, but it doesn't mean that academics of all stripes, but including historians, shouldn't be doing their, their best to ensure that the ways in which these politicians are judged and, to some extent, advised, does not reflect a, a more complicated reality that they have to try and deal with and that they have to explain themselves to their electorate with. So I think that, you know, you're, you're right that, you know, politics is a, is a tough place to go, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't take on tough places to go. Um, and, you know, our, my, my view with, with, with history and policy is that I want historians to be part of that discussion rather than simply not being there at all. If a historian is, you know, is advising a government department and, in, in, you know, in, a, in an influential way... And, and I or another historian really, really disagree with the interpretation they're offering, we can actually dispute that. Um, if no historian is advising anybody, we can't dispute it. If it's just economists, they say, well, what do we want to talk to you about? You're a historian. You can't tell us anything about this. So I think there's, you know, there's perfectly good reasons. Of course, we can't expect history to get some direct main line into the sort of arterial uh, sort of veins of, of politicians. But I think that that doesn't mean we shouldn't be uh, doing our very best and talking more widely to, to a public uh, and, uh, as, and, and their advisors. Um, so I think that, yeah, that's... Uh, and in answer to that very first question, which is a nice one from Emily, I'm, I'm very liberal on things that I don't, I don't want to... I don't think any historians should be doing what I'm asking other historians to do. There's no compulsion about this. I think that it's an option that historians, hopefully, will step forward in, in good numbers, and, you know, in history and policy they have, but I would never want to be sort of trying to coral other academics into this activity. Um, that's, that's up to them. Uh, and um, yeah, I think that's probably yeah. I, I, don't, I don't want to yeah. monopolise this. History does not produce microwave-ready solutions for policymakers, and I think that's uh, our great weakness at the moment. But it's also a strength that we can capitalise on. And one answer to to your question, Emily, that I always pose to my students is when they're doing a piece of research, whether it's an undergraduate research or a PhD or anything in between, is what's the biggest question you can answer with your specific archive problem, event, historiography. Go deep, dive deep into that particular problem, that particular archive, those particular resources, whatever it may be, but always ask yourself, what's the biggest question that you can illuminate with that particular deep dive? That's the crucial thing. And I think that expands outwards into the, uh, the question that Draw asked as well. What do we, how do we want students to think is exactly um, uh, 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 what Simon was saying earlier about articulating those scales of uh, complexity, detail, empiricism, dialogue between narrative, analysis, argument, and evidence, which is what we as historians have been trained to do and do 
uh, I would say, I think many of us on this panel would say, better than other critical human sciences. That's what we do, that concatenation. Uh, it's all very complicated, is the motto that should be engraved over every history department. And that, to give more substance to that, uh, we should say it's all very complicated precisely because there are multiple paths, not just that there are different historians who disagree about causality, timelines, evidence, explanation, frame of reference, whatever it may be, but because there are many, many pasts out there, and we each choose to reconstruct one or some of them in our historical studies. We're all counterfactual historians to that extent. I think it's very important to say that Parche, Richard Evans, for instance, uh, counterfactuals are not just for fun. Every time we produce a narrative or an explanation, we have excluded other narratives, other explanations, other frames of reference. Those counterfactuals are lost on the cutting room floor, but all of our history is counterfactual history in that sense. And the crucial thing about insisting there are multiple pasts and it's, multi uh, and it's all very complex complicated is, again, coming back to one of Simon's points, there are therefore multiple futures as well. That's our critical uh, gift to policymaking. It's to say multiple futures, nothing is path-dependent, nothing is evolutionarily determined in that sense. Uh, almost the first response we got to the History Manifesto uh, when it went live open access on Friday came from uh, a senior policy analyst in the Prime Minister's office in Singapore. And she wrote to me and said, this is absolutely fantastic that you've written this. Uh, I've been engaged in dialogue between our office and the Prime Minister's office in Australia about the necessity of embedding more futurists in our policymaking apparatuses at the very highest levels of policymaking. Where do we get those futurists from? We get them among historians. Historians get are, are the best futurists because we recognize the complexity of the past. So again, Pache, Sir Tom Devine in the, uh, the Scottish independence uh, debate over the past few weeks, the future is our period as historians. The future, or we should say futures, are our periods as historians, just as pasts are our periods as historians. Multiple, complex, interlocking, uh, but never path-dependent and never singular. So quickly, you wanted to come in? Yes, just a quick question, because we missed Dora's question, and I, I think that I am so delighted that a school teacher is, mm. is asking mm. what mm. the takeaway is. Mm -hmm. And it meshes beautifully with Simon's comments, either mm. on the importance of of listening to the world around us, to the medium term, yes, yes, to all of that. Uh, but, you know, I think this listening to policymakers, listening to the world around us, which is essentially what we're advocating. We're not advocating the super long durée of millennia. We're not big historians. Our long durée for both of us is about 150 years, which is long enough for institutions, long enough to see change. And it's really, it's really you know, the, the curriculum of an average uh, school history class. Um, uh, and I, I think that historians become re-engaged with contemporary issues when they, they start by reading the newspaper. You don't have to start by talking to the policy, the policymaker. If you don't aren't friends with Simon already, uh, you start by looking in the newspaper. So the, the question of where where you might start in a school news uh, school, I would imagine making a connection to the historians who are writing right now who have been reading the newspaper. And just off the top of my head, the things that have been coming over my desk recently are hist historians of energy, historians of infrastructure, of food, of nutrition. And all of these policies are ripe. They're changing right now. You know, what is the history of, of prison policy in this country or other co countries, the history of detainments? Uh, and I think what's needed, what I would add to that from our long readings of the subject, is a return to the history of reform. We have not talked about reform 
We have not spoken about uh, reform and reformers in the context of the 19th century without the lens of pessimism attached for quite some time. And just finding a couple examples of reform and reformers who weren't totally wrong, who weren't totally full of their privilege, just finding a couple of examples, how is that done right? You know, from sewerage reform or air pollution reform or any case in the 19th century city, it's very interesting. It's a challenge. Yeah. Um, just to pick up on uh, one thing which quite amused me, um, which is that our experience in history and policy about how to get historians listened to by policymakers and so on is our sort of prime product is what we call a policy paper, which is 4,000 words maximum, no footnotes allowed, no jargon allowed, bullet points at the start, etc., to try to make it very easy and accessible to people who probably aren't trained historians but are highly intelligent policy-interested people. And the one, we have one, one or two very important rules, and one of them is that you, as a historian, you are not allowed to conclude your policy paper with the statement, so it's all much more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> you, we, we say that you have to stick your neck out and select a particular policy tractable specific proposal to offer from your piece of history and that's something that you know goes against the grain for historians but that's that's the deal and you know 150 different historians have have taken that and they've accepted it and of course you know we know that they would dearly love to say and 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 but we say no you've got to just restrict yourself to this one or two specific points you may not even entirely believe them because you know but you are not going to get policy people to read this thing unless they've got something to take away and you know you've got to offer it a couple of quick questions to wind up from the no, there's always more than two mm-hmm. gentlemen in the blue shirt you were first and I'm afraid I'm going to take the young lady sorry to describe it that way but the woman in the second third row uh, good evening, and uh, thank you for a very stimulating talk. Uh, my name is Jim Moher. I'm a former trade union official and actually associated with the History and Policy Forum um, um, to, because basically looking at things from a trade union perspective, we're in a jam. We'd like to get some answers <coughs> from history. Uh, but at the point um, Simon was making, particularly it took me, uh, there was a time when uh, historians were taken very seriously. And I'm thinking particularly of uh, not just Adam Smith, but David Ricardo and uh, John Stuart Mill, um, when they were, in fact, political economists. And it may be that economists have got the inside track now. Uh, Would it be the case that historians should maybe team up with um, economists and uh, perhaps go back to the term political economist, which is integrally uh, connected with history? Thank you. Can you pass the microphone across? I think this is going to have to be the last question. Good evening. I'm a, thank you for your talk, first of all. I'm a prospective history student. I take AS at the moment, so just beginning. Um, and my question is, do you think historians should step forward not just to advise but to become policymakers? And should this new change be driven by people like myself who are just coming through and considering going into history in university terms and future terms? Sorry, what was your name? Moena, sorry, I forgot. Do you want to answer that first? Okay, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, yes, um, well, when uh, I would highly recommend you to look upon your undergraduate degree in history if you take it as, um, as a good way to prepare yourself for becoming a policy 
policymaker, if that's what you choose to do. I don't, as, I, as you would expect me to say, I can't think of a better training. Uh, so uh, all power to you, and you, you go ahead and do that. Um, uh, and, and there are plenty, plenty of politicians who have taken history as their as their training. Uh, uh, you know, not just law and economics. Um, it's a common practice. Um, to Jim, um, nice to see you, Jim. Um, uh, I think that, uh, I mean, as I've mentioned already, there is there is a there is quite a there's a subset of history called economic history, which is quite broadly defined nowadays, it addresses problems in economic history, but the methods that are used are often as qualitative as much as quantitative. It embraces cultural and social and intellectual history focused on to the problems of economic history. So I think that there is a whole branch, uh, and it has journals like notably the Economic History Review, where the, you know, which has been going for 80 years, where historians work with problems that are of direct relevance to economists, and they, but they offer a somewhat different approach to um, what is today called mainstream economics. But let's not forget, and you know, your, 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 your question raises it, that economics, you know, in its history has a number of strands to it. What is currently called mainstream would be more accurately called neoliberal economics, which actually identifies the ideological slant within it. There is Keynesian economics, there's socialist economics, there's Marxist economics, there's classical political economy, which... Um, and there is, there is political economy still today. So there are, there are many forms of economics, and one of the really rather interesting questions for historians and others to ask is why this particular variant um, has become really quite dominant, particularly in Anglo-Saxon uh, societies over about the last 30 or 40 years. And, and there are a number of you know, quite... Imp- historians are, you know, are working on that and have published on that, and it's clear that... Um, the, the way in which this ascendancy was established is a complex story and a very interesting one um, with you know, multiple causality uh, attaching to it. But it, um, it also is, you know, I think, a fragile uh, dominance which um, certain problems are emerging. The, the ones that this book, History Manifesto, identifies, you know, all three of them, climate uh, problems, equality and governance, which you know, I think we can say are have been exacerbated by too too much reliance on this one model. I'm going to do this alphabetically, so mm-hmm. it's Joe and then David. But can I ask you to be brief because we we need to finish at eight, and the recording will end, mm-hmm. and therefore I, my last word won't be recorded if you go on beyond. So. <laughs> Terrific. Well, we wouldn't we wouldn't want that to happen. So I just wanted to say really briefly to, to Jim one of the things that we talk about in the book. Uh, is is the history of economists and visualization, how economists teach their ideas. And so the birth of the... It's, it's helpful to know that the birth of the demand-supply curves that we all know and love and we're familiar with them as a tool of economic argumentation and reasoning at every level of the economy, that those evolved in the era of the popular front as... Uh, labor economists, Marxist economists, were trying to teach their rank and file about about how their wages and how the prices of commodities were set. The visualization was held to be a more efficient way of communicating to large numbers of people, large numbers of people without sophisticated training and argumentation. It's succinct, it's portable, you can reproduce it, you can draw it on on a chalkboard. And we, for this is, us, this is very provocative because we live in the era of big data and the data can produce a chart. It can produce a chart of dimensions, of words, of concepts, 
of institutions over time. So uh, in, if we're in alliance with trade unions, what does that mean for how historians might borrow from the tools of the economists? David. Extremely briefly, uh, to Jim, uh, collaboration is essential and enjoyable, as we've discovered writing this book, that two brains or sometimes more than two brains on a project are usually much better than one, uh, especially slightly more seriously in relation to the point you made about economists. Uh, uh, so many disciplines now, uh, economics, uh, climate science, uh, genomics, uh, cosmology are becoming more and more historical but often without direct dialogue with historians so there are many opportunities for us to engage with other fields and to have other fields to engage with us and to, uh, to Morwenna absolutely uh, I just agree with Simon that uh, history is the best possible training for any uh, uh, conceivable career I see it as my, my job uh, not just to produce other little professors though I do do that and I'm very happy to do that to, to come, come back to Draw's question but to uh, create more historically informed citizens citizens, uh, policymakers, lawyers, accountants, bankers, whatever it may be who come, come out of our classrooms, they should have that uh, sense of historical complexity and depth. To quote that, uh, that great uh, historian who would never have got tenure because he published too little and it wasn't footnoted, uh, Cicero, history is the guide to life, the magister vitae. Thank you. Um, in, in, in having the last word, I do have the privilege of doing two things. The first is to thank you all for coming tonight for your questions and for being part of, of, of this conversation about the History Manifesto. And then second, and perhaps a little bit more importantly, is to thank the panellists for leading this discussion. So hopefully you'll, enjoy, you'll join with me in showing your appreciation for Joe, David, and, and, and for Simon for their... <laughs>